welcome to From the Frontline. This evening, we'll be discussing evangelizing in war zones. Now, Dr. Hammond, you've seen your fair share of war zones, and in fact, Frontline Fellowship began on the front lines in the military. Uh, so this is something that's really been in the DNA of Frontline Fellowship and in your ministry over the last 40 years. Um, so we look forward to hearing some more of the conversation tonight with what it looks like to evangelize in war zones. Well, as so many people's attention now is focused on the war in Ukraine, I think it's so important that Christians don't just look at any evening news with the perspective of uh, the journalists, the politicians. We need to look at it as from perspective of Great Commission Christians as in terms of missions. And war zones are also mission fields. And mm. people cannot have this attitude of, of, oh, we only serve the Lord where it's safe and easy and legal. No, uh, the Great Commission doesn't tell us to stop at the barbed wire fence or the minefield or the iron mm. curtain when the iron curtain was up or the bamboo curtain that might be up today um, around much of Red China and North Korea. Mm. No, uh, it's so important for us to understand that those people, even the combatants, even the enemy forces from your perspective, they are souls for whom Christ died and who need the gospel mm. and the Great Commission applies them too. So you think of even during the Crusades, there were people such as Francis of Assisi, who went all the way to Egypt, not to fight, but to present the gospel to the Sultan of Egypt. Mm. And so uh, that's so important that we as Christians have unique solutions, that we're not just getting caught up in the narrative and the propaganda or the patriotism or the outrage or the wh whatever uh, mm. is the method at that time and, and where you can just see there's so much of the sameness. You can hear over and over, you know, bomb them, nuke them, rain destruction and turn them to radioactive ash. And that's not the way Christians should be talking about anybody. Mm. And it's just so unhelpful when you think there's a lot of Christians who get whipped up and later they'll feel embarrassed. So I just think of how many wars have been on the go where people have looked at it from the perspective of some politicians or some media character. And now look back. I mean, let's just think back to 2011, outrage of a 9-11, terrorist attacks. This is terrible. We've got to do something. And next thing you know, um, fine, America's getting involved in Afghanistan. Well, okay, maybe the terrorists had links to Afghanistan and the Taliban's a bad government. Mm. Um, of course, they were supported by CIA earlier in an mm. earlier war when, when Russia invaded Afghanistan mm. and America was helping the Afghan Mujahideen, out of which grew the Taliban al-Qaeda, by the way, mm. and they were being given stinger missiles and training and being taught to be insurgents. And uh, one couldn't see the ripple effect of, oh, what that's going to affect later. You know, you, you start fires in other people's backyards, it might spread to your uh, mm. property too, if you're not careful. Mm. But... Before you know it, that war was 20 years going and it ended in the most catastrophic, disastrous way and the situation afterwards was worse than it was beforehand and would have been better if they hadn't even gone there. Mm. And then you think of weapons of mass destruction, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, got to, uh, just, and the destruction. And at the end of it, they didn't find the weapons of mass destruction, but hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were dead. I think now it's well over the million mark as a result of that war. And... For what purpose? The situation is vastly worse. The country was basically destroyed. That was very advanced and with a lot of religious freedom for Christians in Iraq. There were something like 1.6 million Christians in Iraq before the war started. Today, I don't even think there's 100,000 left. Yeah. The effect of the Great Commission has been disastrous. So people need to look at the world 
not from the political perspective, but I would like people to be turning to Operation Board of mm. Patrick Johnson and Jason Mandrake and looking and seeing what has God been doing in this country? What is the state of the church? What is the state of missions? And uh, what are the answers to prayer to praise God for? What are the needs that we need to be focusing on for prayer or action, uh, if possible? Some churches might be able to take some projects there, see what missions are working there, uh, what gaps are there. And when we look at a country from a missionary perspective, now we're involved in long-term solutions because ultimately there's no political or military solution to any country's Mm. problems. And uh, certainly bombing countries does not resolve anything. It just mm. aggravates the situation immensely. However, sending in the missionaries and producing Bibles is going to be a whole lot more constructive than bombs and Marines mm. uh, being sent into any foreign conflict. So I'd like people to be thinking, when they think Ukraine, start thinking souls for whose, whom Christ died, churches needing help. People needing the gospel, soldiers needing the gospel, not just Ukrainian soldiers, but Russian soldiers, they mm. need the gospel too. And if we can start to understand it from that perspective, I can look back over a lot of wars in Africa, out of which nothing but disaster came. But I can look back over missionary outreaches throughout Africa, where phenomenally good uh, results have come. Mm. And a lot of um, your perspective on how we as Christians engage in warfare and with the gospel, I think there's a unique sort of flair that reform theology, but also post-millennial theology seems to view these things, where you see a lot of conservative, even Christians in the States, sort of taking up the mantle and rah, rah, let's go to war. And it's almost like if if it's patriotic and we're Americans and we're conservatives and we're Bible-believing, we should be behind the wars of our nation. Um, but you don't exactly take that perspective, and that's impacted by your eschatology, isn't that? Very much so, yes. Uh, when I started as a Christian, in fact, uh, when our mission started 40 years ago, I was pre-mill, pre-trib, dispensational, rapture fever, living in lost days, living in lost hours, Jesus coming before the end of the year. I was absolutely convinced. I mean, it was just no doubt in my mind. So much so that I, I'm ashamed to admit it, that on our first mission to Mozambique, we did not take full Bibles. We took New Testaments. Mm. I didn't want to confuse the Mozambicans with the Old Testament. And I had flippant little comments like, well, you know, we don't want them sacrificing sheep and building tabernacles in the <laughs> desert now, do we? And uh, I, I did not understand the foundational importance of the Old Testament. Mm. And I, I was not a Bible Christian as much as what we used to call that time, a New Testament Christian. <laughs> not that there's any Christian New Testament would have called himself a New Testament yeah. <laughs> Christian. <laughs> when Paul said all scriptures inspired of God and is useful, he was referring to the old, the old, I mean, that yeah. was the only Bible around uh, <laughs> at that stage. So uh, it's it's quite sad how today we've gotten ourselves narrow and narrow. And also the idea of the gospel. I mean, my idea of the gospel at that stage was fairly you know, narrow, get, get the guy saved. And again, there's a difference between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. And the gospels read, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. Now, the gospel of the kingdom is about the king of kings and his kingdom, it includes the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of salvation is a small part of the bigger picture. When we only preach the gospel of salvation, we're missing perspective. Then it becomes all about me and has, has been put out well in one of these documentaries where it said modern gospel is more like I'm the star of the show and God is a supporting actor in a show that's all about me. And unfortunately, while average Christian may not have put it that way, that's the way it often works out. Mm. Whereas... When we start from the perspective it's all about God and where do we fit into his plan, 
that's a whole different perspective. A God-centered, a theocentric approach to devotions and doctrine is so important, whereas a man-centered approach is inevitably going to go wrong because you'll start to alter the gospel to be less offensive to people, to become more of a salesman. And But we're not meant to be salesmen. We're meant to be ambassadors. We're meant to be presenting God's message. It's not mine to adjust and make less offensive and mm. tailor-make and get out the censorship scissors. And, uh, that is a problem. So this is where we need to be people who preach the gospel of the kingdom. So as a new Christian uh, and as a new missionary, I must say I had a fairly short-term goal because – you know, we just got a chance to do one, maybe two missions, and then Jesus is going to return. And so I wasn't thinking long term. But as I became from Bible study more and more reformed and realizing, wow, there's more truth per square inch in the reformed camp than there's anywhere else, and saying that the depth, this is this is great. Hmm. And also, to be honest, there weren't answers from my pre-mill, pre-trip dispensational background for a lot of what we're doing. A person would say to me, how can you? smuggle Bibles into a communist country like Mozambique, Angola, it's against the law. I mean, what about Romans 13? You've got to submit to the government. And uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I didn't exactly know how until I started to look at Lex Rex in defense of, of ter- liberty against tyranny, uh, studying the teachings of the reformers, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, starting to understand well, all authority is limited authority. All authority is delegated by God. All authority is answerable to God. God hasn't given a blank check to anybody, let alone political entities called governments. And God has instituted self-government, the conscience, family government, they have the rod, church government, they have the keys, and civil government. Now, obviously, your conscience can be deceptive. It is possible to be sincerely wrong. There's a way that seems right unto man, the end of his death. So our conscience needs to be kept the word of God because our mm. conscience on its own isn't good enough. There are people who probably are enthusiastic jihadists who believe blowing people up mm. is the right thing to do because his conscience has been seared and it's been just like a compass can be interfered with by a magnet and doesn't give you true north. So again, uh, church government, could you have church leaders who are false prophets, false teachers, false brethren, false shepherds? Yes, in fact, mm. There's lots of warnings against being deceived. That's why we had a reformation. And there were <laughs> serious uh, wrongs and false doctrine in the church. So why would it be that you could have parents who might abuse their children and abandon their children, even kill their children? You might have your conscience that's failing. You might have a church government that's apostate. But when it comes civil government, no, they get a blank check. They're always right. You've always got to submit to them. That's not logical. And the Bible has many examples of civil disobedience, which was honored by God. Like the Egyptian midwives who did not kill the Hebrew mm. baby boys when they were born because um, uh, they said, oh, well, when we get there, they'd already given birth. and So they had an excuse. But they basically lied to Caesar, uh, mm. to Pharaoh. But what they were doing was saving lives. And Hebrews 11 puts them up as, as examples of, of, uh, of the faithful. Now, uh, similarly, Rahab uh, lying to the Jericho gods in order to protect the spies of, of Joshua. And uh, in this way, she's in the line of, of, of the Lord and in the uh, Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith because she did what was right in resistance to tyranny. And tyrants don't deserve information they're going to use to injure or to kill the innocent and so on. And so it is with Bible smuggling and missions to persecuted church. 
Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar deserves the coin. Give him the coin. Uh, but uh, you don't give him everything he demands. You, most things go to God. Render unto Caesar things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Today, most people think of give God a coin and give Caesar everything else. And that's the wrong way around. The whole emphasis is to render unto God the things that are God's. And God deserves all honor, praise, obedience. Mm -hmm. And our children are not made in the image of Caesar, but in the image of God. And therefore, we should uh, be sure that our children are brought up in love and admonition, Lord. So when it comes to Bible smuggling, I had to get the point of realizing nobody can countermand the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our Lord who gave the Great Commission is the highest authority. Not the UN nor Angola have any authority to mm. countermand the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, teach obedience to all uh, things the Lord has commanded, go into all the world, preach gospel to every creature. How can this be countermanded by anybody? Nobody has a higher authority than the Creator and the Eternal uh, Judge. Therefore, uh, in our mission, uh, we got more and more reformed. We got more and more serious about discipleship. We began to think more and more long-term. And, and when I started this work in 1982, I would never have imagined that in my lifetime, Mozambique would be free for the gospel. Hmm. And that missionaries would be legal and Bibles could be legal. We could set up Christian schools in Mozambique or that the Iron Curtain could have come down and that Russia could be printing Bibles and that uh, mm. they would have chaplains and army instead of commissars or that you would have religious freedom throughout the whole of Eastern Europe. Uh, it, it wouldn't have crossed my mind that that was possible. I mean, mm. we're living in the last days. So we've got to recognize God's thoughts are always higher than our thoughts. His ways mm. are always greater than our ways. Yeah. And even if I couldn't have imagined that South Sudan would have been free and independent mm. and uh, uh, that the Nuba Mountains would be at peace and you'd be able to be digging wells, building schools and distributing hundreds of thousands of Bibles. But that that happened. But at the time when we began, we couldn't have imagined what God would have been doing because mm. the word of God is powerful and God's answers to prayer are much more powerful than our humble and adequate prayers. Mm. So, yes, I think if we can just look at war zones as a challenge, how mm. are we going to fulfill the Great Commission in this challenging situation but remember, bad times are good for spiritual work. Mm. And I think with a post-millennial sort of vision of victory, we're seeing the Great Commission go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that God actually wants this fulfilled, that this must be fulfilled. Uh, and many calls of, we even see in Revelation how every tribe, nation, and tongue will be around the throne. Well, we believe this as Christians. So God's kingdom isn't man's kingdom, though. I think this is where some of these things sort of break down. And we often think, well, America, it's, it was founded as a Christian nation, so anything America does, yes, has the stamp of God's approval on it. Well, <laughs> God isn't behind the United States or South Africa or the Ukraine or Russia. He's for his kingdom. And it's not as if he's given the stamp of approval, just a blank check, as he said, to any of these nations. Rather, his kingdom is about winning souls from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so that's what we're about. We're not, oh, okay, we're on the Ukrainian side or we're on the Russian side. No, we're on the kingdom side. We want souls to be won from every side. So what are some things uh, transitioning now of as you began working in war zones, uh, how did you catch this vision? Why did, why did this come about? Well, I was brought up in Rhodesia in a secular home where – my father had served all six years in the Second World War as a bombardier and Royal Artillery, mostly North Africa, 8th Army under Field Marshal Montgomery, amongst others, in Italy. And so, you know, I grew up knowing my dad being war. In fact, grandfather, great-grandfather, going back to Battle of Waterloo, I mean, we'd always had Hammonds and in uniform and 
it was a generational thing. And my brother was in the Rhodesian Army. And so, yeah, I was looking forward to when I'd finished my schooling and I could get into uniform and do my part to fight communism. And that was just part of your upbringing and way of thinking. But at age 17, I was converted to Christ. I heard the gospel. I was called to missions. And the first missionary who passed by our church was Francis Grimm of Hospital Christian Fellowship. I rushed forward and I joined his mission, HCF. Now, in Hospital Christian Fellowship, they had a, a vision statement that said more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. So the vision of Hospital Christian Fellowship, HCF, now Healthcare Christian Fellowship, is to train doctors, nurses, health professionals, pharmacists, and orderlies, whoever's in the hospitals, uh, reach them disciple them, train them as evangelists so they can be continual discipleship and training and evangelistic witness to other hospital personnel and patients who come in and their families. And what a strategic idea is. As it was said, one of the regular guest speakers at HCF Devotions was Brother Andrew of God Smuggler fame. And he said to us, the communists may close churches, but they don't close hospitals. And uh, and I mean, it's it's a, a wise point that the hospitals continued to do a lot of great work. And I found my ministry behind the Iron Curtain. A lot of the top leaders of the Reformation movement in, for example, Romania, were medical doctors like Dr. Paul Negrut and Dr. Nick Gorgitsa. And he's a uh, top endocrinologist, top medical specialist. And they became church leaders. Uh, they were able to do so much in, in the hospitals mm. that wouldn't have been legal because they couldn't do without these medical specialists. Mm. And uh, still, HCF was, was a great vision. Now, while I was in HGF getting my initial missionary training, along came my military call-up. And, well, all uh, young men in South Africa, uh, after leaving school, had to do their stint in army. You might get a deferment for university, but as it so happens, I had thrown up my university um, uh, scholarship to be a history teacher um, at UCT. I had uh, even turned down an opportunity to go and study for home affairs, uh, foreign affairs at mm. Stellenbosch University. And so I had two bursaries I threw up. And so my military call-up kicked in um, uh, six months later, and I got called up to South African Infantry. And I went in there with a basically negative attitude. Oh, even though my whole life I'd been wanting to be a soldier, now, now it was, I want to be a missionary. This is wasting my time there. Two years wasted. And <laughs> I'm sitting there in this negative frame of mind of, ugh, you know, why have I got to waste my time with this? And God opened my eyes and said, is this not a mission field? I mean, look around. Hmm. You know, from the sound of it and the look of it, there's a lot of pagans around here. <laughs> I mean, not everyone around me knew the Lord, that's for sure. <laughs> and so I suddenly realized, well, I wonder if this is like what Francis Grimm says, you know, more people pass the hospitals world than through churches. Well, more young men in South Africa at that time were passing through military bases than probably through churches and youth groups. Hmm. And... Uh, is this not a mission field? Well, it wasn't a mission field I'd asked for, but it's a mission field God gave me. Mm. And the first challenge to me was to make a stand. And it was terrifying because, you know, you don't want to stand out. And there's hundreds of men all with the same no hair, um, haircut and uh, brown uniforms. And there were maybe five, six hundred of us in the hall. At, we'd be whittled down to 120 uh, short order through selection. But... On that first Sunday, I asked the chaplain, can I please speak? And go ahead. I stood up and turned, and my, my heart was pounding so heavy, I sort of drowned out everything. It was terrifying. It was intimidating. Mm. But I stood up and I faced the men and I said, 
I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, and I want to honor him during my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. And I sat down. Mm. That's all I said. But but that was the stand I needed to make. And now let's start our prayer fellowship and Bible mm. study group, which out of which grew the mission ultimately. And mm. it was such a dynamic, powerful opportunity. And although uh, I was initially frustrated, I came to look back at it. One of the greatest times of spiritual growth, Bible study, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship in my life. It was intense. I mean, everything about military service was like a missionary service with some military added on. It was, mm. it was such a phenomenal opportunity for me that it became clear by the end, praying through Operation World, praying through the nights on prayer chains, uh, every night Bible study and prayer meeting, that we saw we need a mission of people from military background to go into war zones to help the persecute church, smuggle in Bibles, and to evangelize the soldiers. You know, so we got this idea of evangelizing war zones, helping persecute churches, and uh, uh, this this was the vision. And at that moment, the countries surrounding South Africa were called the frontline states. Hmm. And they called themselves the frontline states because they were in the front line against apartheid South Africa. Hmm. And so Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, they were the frontline states, and Tanzania called himself a frontline state too, although I don't know how they were quite mm, they not exactly, exactly connected. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so those were the those were the frontline states. And so we were from the frontline in the sense of being in the infantry. And so frontline fellowship was an ambiguous term. Wanting to be in the frontline of missions, people recruit from the frontline and we're ministering at the frontline state. So that's where the name came from. Mm. But the vision was reaching our enemies for Christ. And there was this burden. We must, uh, in fact, this this is how it came to me. We were on an all-night prayer chain. It came to me praying through Operation World. You know, the Cubans are sending their troops, 55,000 at this moment in Angola. Have we ever sent a missionary to Cuba? Hmm. Russians are sending every kind of weaponry over to Angola. Have we ever sent a missionary to Russia? Not that I know of. Angola's hosting terrorists to attacking us in Southwest Africa. Have we ever seen missionaries to Angola? Not that I knew of. And so you could carry on with Mozambique and so on. And I thought, well, they're coming to us with hate. We should go to them with love. They're coming to us with bombs. We should go to them with Bibles. They're coming to us with terrorism. We should go over to them with the gospel. And uh, my idea was counterattack, you know. Hmm. And uh, let, let them think they can destroy us with their communist terrorism, but we can do more than destroy communism with the gospel missions. We can win many of these people, our enemies now, to being our friends and brothers. And, and it, was, it was quite a, a dramatic picture and vision. And it was fulfilled. It, it may have looked ridiculous. I mean, we had people saying, this is not legal, this isn't possible, this is too dangerous, you're not the right person, this isn't the right time. I mean, a lot of people were, were Job's comforters and Ministry of Discouragement, mm. Gift of Criticism. Uh, but I was so convinced that this is right. And God was merciful to use our fairly harebrained ideas because <laughs> bought a motorbike and they're on an off-road 250cc XL Honda Scrambler, uh, loaded up with Bibles, 100 New Testaments, I should say, and uh, <laughs> uh, a thousand World Missionary Press Gospel booklets and Portuguese and Shangan and, and uh, Ronga and Swa different Mozambique languages, Jesus film, 16 mil Jesus film, and rode off two of us on, on two off-road bikes into Mozambique, and we didn't know a thing. 
We didn't know a word of Portuguese. We didn't have a contact. I mean, talk about a faith mission. It was blind. And and yet we got in. It was extraordinary. In a time of war when South Africa had no diplomatic relations with Mozambique, 1982, April 1982, went through Swaziland. I knew enough to know we can't go from South Africa to Mozambique. There's no border crossing. Uh, so we went through Swaziland, which had diplomatic relations. And extraordinarily, God led me to a man to ask him for uh, an invitation, uh, a recommendation to the Mozambique Embassy. Because when I went to the Mozambique Embassy, he said, well, you're not a citizen of Swaziland. You need a citizen of Swaziland to recommend you for Hmm. us to accept your visa application. Well, the only person I had a contact with in the whole of Swaziland was Dr. David Hyde. And uh, Dr. David Hyde was a Hospital Christian Fellowship contact. Now, it so happened that his son, Dr. Samuel Hyde, uh, was Minister of Health. I didn't know that at the time. And so when I got a letter of recommendation from Dr. David Hyde, who, by the way, was also the uh, personal physician of King Sabuza, mm. who is the monarch of Swaziland. Yeah. So uh, his letter of recommendation on letter it was war. And he's <laughs> the same family as the Minister of Health. So we next thing I got a diplomatic gratis visa, a free visa, which, as you know, wow. is quite rare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that diplomatic gratis visa in passport, I got like through on magic carpet, through the roadblocks. The moment they saw this, there was no searching, no anything. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> it was just God's provision. And how did I know about all these things? Yeah. <laughs> but we're going in with five roadblocks, getting into Mozambique, and no tourists, no tourists are going to Mozambique. Mm. 1982, war zone, communist state, just nothing. And no trade either. And I get to the city, pitch dark, sunset, pitch, pitch dark, no street lights, total power failure. You know, they didn't have power failures. They occasionally got electricity. <laughs> and so I'm standing in the dark at the side of the road just greeting people who are passing by. Hello, 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 hello. And after quite a while, somebody said hello back. And I turned and said, do you speak English? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a Christian? He said, praise the Lord. And I said, hallelujah. <laughs> and he said, do you have a place to stay? I said, no. He said, you must come stay in my house tonight. Well, that was an answered prayer. He said, do you have a translator? I speak Ronga, Tsonga, Tswa, Portuguese fluently. Wow. You've got the job. And uh, it, it turned out to be a, a Church of England man, Anglican, mm. in Maputo. And uh, a Mozambican, of course, but he understood English because mm. he'd been trained. Over. Just the key person I needed. And before the next morning, I don't know what he, if he slept, but the next morning he had hundreds of people gathered in underground church service, all sorts of opportunities. And then um, to show you again my, my gullibility as a brand new missionary, not knowing a thing about anything, I tell the people, we brought the Jesus film to show you. Ah, people like that. Does anyone know we can get a 16 mil projector? <laughs> absolutely depressing. Oh, no. <laughs> and then I had someone say, don't you have a generator? No. We don't have any electricity in Maputo. I know. Oh. Um, well, okay, that seemed to be in a bit of a damp squib. Uh, you know, I brought 16 mil four reels of the cheese film, but I didn't bring a projector. Oh, I didn't no. bring a generator. <laughs> and, well, afterwards, someone came to me and said, I work at the British Embassy. And he said come to the corner of Vladimir Lenin and Mao Zedong tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Actual street, the, names, yeah. <laughs> actual street names. And um, he introduced me to the British consul, who, when he saw the British passport, and, you know, a few things about my dad, who's well-connected as well, Willow Club and all this, and next thing, okay, he'll lend me a 16 mil projector, but he says, 
but sorry, we don't have any generators spare and there's never electricity here. Hmm. So, okay, um, no generator, no electricity, but we've got a projector. So I went and organized a venue. We set it up and, I mean, you know, the zeal of a new convert. And, <laughs> and uh, the people said, but there's no electricity. And by the way, this church, there was no roof. There's no windows. It was bullets guard. It was mm. hollowed out wreck. And there were just some wires in the corner. Whatever plugs there were have been looted. Uh, obviously, there's no light bulb. So. so I took the wires out and started to mesh them together and had to take the plug off, our uh, plug for our projector, and tied the wires together. Let's pray for electricity. And the people are, this <laughs> foreigner is really gullible. But would you believe it? God was so merciful. Electricity came on. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we showed the Jesus film all the way up to the crucifixion. And in the middle of the crucifixion, power went out. I thought, well, that's not bad. Yeah. So I stood up and I gave an impassioned preaching by some torchlights and with the translator. And uh, as I am sort of getting to the end of the sermon on the importance of the cross, the lights come back on. Wow. People stand and said, you know, if the lights come on, it's maybe the only time in the whole week you're going to get it. Wow. So we finished off the film to the end of the resurrection and the power went off again. And it was just, how can you explain that sort of thing? It's, mm. It was just so charismatic, yeah. except that I was a Baptist. And we, we, we had these sort of miraculous provisions mm. and extraordinary things. And people come. There's another time I was showing the Jesus film in a massive, massive old empty church, maybe 2,000 people here, mm. colossal amount of people. And at the end, of, as the, at that point I was more, Organized, we actually had generator and all this too. So at the end, when uh, I gave the altar call, I saw people coming up wearing camouflage, holding AK 47s, and I immediately thought, I'm going to get arrested. But these soldiers that came to the front, and they were the first up front, they put their rifles on the ground and they knelt down and they were wanting to surrender lives to the Lord. Wow. You know, from heart stopping shock to suddenly, because it was pitch dark, there's no real lights. You, you can imagine. You know, coming out of the dark, you see these guys, you think they, they're coming for me. And meanwhile, they're coming for the gospel. Mm. And I had the chance of baptizing Philemo soldiers. Mm. And wow. I was thinking, my brother fought Philemo in the Rhodesian army. And yeah, just a few months ago, it was in South African army. And literally, I was having not just fellowship with, but I was baptizing and, and celebrating Lord's Supper with people who had been our enemies. Mm. But now... Had been converted. So wow. uh, now I'm just talking about the first two missions to yeah. Mozambique, how God opened the door. And yes, it was possible for South mm. Africans to evangelize in Mozambique. It was possible for um, even our enemies to be converted. And in later missions, we had the chance of reaching the resistance fighters, Renamo and Unita and MPLA and Angola. And mm. I showed the Jesus form in Zimbabwe National Army bases. And, and there were you know, the people who've been the terrorists who fought my brother when my brother was in the Rhodesian Army, there they are watching the Jesus film coming forward. And I had a nice little ditty at that time. I said, you've seen the film. Now read the book and meet the star. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be giving them a gospel of Luke in Shauna. They've mm. just seen the, the Jesus film, which is based yeah, on the gospel, the gospel of Luke in Luke, Shauna. Yeah. Now they're getting the booklet and now meet the star, meaning give your life yeah. to the Lord. And um, so we, we, we weren't particularly... Um, reformed in our advances at the very beginning, but but wow. it was a start. Mm. So, how many years after uh, being in the military then was when you did that first mission into Mozambique and then those oh, first couple of missions? The, the very next year, it was, the very it was next literally year, okay. a few months later. Mm. It took me a few months of whizzing around on a motorbike, 
and uh, trying to convince different missions to take us on. And I went to a lot of missions. Maybe they had about 50-something different missions mm -hmm. around South Africa, hitchhiking, motorbiking around, putting forward the vision. We got people ready, and no one was willing to take us on. Too dangerous, too difficult, not legal. What if um, you want to get arrested or killed and so on? I thought, well, we're the ones taking the risk, but um, it was just not willing. So in the end, um, Francis Grimm encouraged me just, well, start your own mission, um, which I felt, yeah, I'm only 21. Um, I was soon to be 20, I was 22 by the time I crossed the border on the first mission. But um, I can't start a mission, mm. which is why we use the term frontline fellowship, you know, not frontline mission or something, because I felt like it's fellowship and kept hoping some mission was going to adopt us. But at that stage, it was considered so off the wall what we were doing that I couldn't find a mission that was willing to take responsibility for us. Hmm. And so you had a vision of not only uh, reaching out into war zones, but reaching combatants, reaching civilians, not only your own forces, but enemy forces. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So, of course, right from the beginning, I think our very first step always was find the local churches and deliver Bibles and books to them and whatever they need. And they always wanted Bibles, Biblia, Biblia. I mean, that's the first thing they said what they needed. And uh, then there would be requests for medical and Bible teaching. But uh, once we were with the local churches, they'd give us a better understanding of what's going on. Then I've done my delivery. Now I'm on my way out. I'm no longer staying with the local church. Let me try reaching different soldiers. So roadblocks are an obvious opportunity. But sometimes going to a base and do you want to see a film? Got a film. When I had a generator and a, mm. and a 16 mil projector, which took money. Uh, to give you an idea of how prices have changed, uh, back in 1982, 16 mil film, that's the four reels of the G's film, cost 650 rand. Mm. Now, my motorbike cost 1,000 rand. Wow. And, and a projector cost 600 rand. <laughs> so the projector cost less than the four reels of the G's film. Mm. Now, today, your projector, your video projector, is going to cost a lot more than a video cassette or a DVD. Mm. Uh, but back then, it, the technology was such that actually the 16 mil reels could cost more than a whole projector. Mm. So, I mean, that just gives you an idea of, yeah. of what we were dealing with. But once we could afford, you know, I first afford the Jesus form, but then could afford the projector. Mm. And then, of course, later on, we could get a generator. And, and, so, and this is just how it had to work. You, once I had the generator, well, then we could actually turn up in, in a military base, a terrorist camp and so on. Would you like to see a film? Of course they want to see a film. <laughs> Crank it up and show them. And, you know, Okay, it's a Jesus film, it's religious, but I mean, the guys would really get caught up in it and stand up and give God to call and challenge him. And lots of film evangelism, film evangelism was normally our first step. That's where we got the people in the marketplace. Then the literature distribution, from that would come counseling, prayer, and then people would come and invite you to form ministry. So if I got to a place and I've never been there before, first thing I'd often do is film evangelism, put up the screen, projector, show the film. Mm. And from that would come hordes of invitations. And after that, you're just so busy in the district, you run out of time before you run out of opportunities for ministry. So uh, the, the film evangelism was a good beginning. And what was also helpful was I wasn't a preacher. I hadn't gone to Bible college either. And you know, it was a challenge for me to be able to give a two-minute introduction or conclusion to the Jesus film. Hmm. But I learned how to preach introducing uh, the Jesus film and concluding it. And remember then you'd get five preaching for every film because you got mm. four reels. 
So you put yeah. before and between each reel. Mm. Well, one of your team members is changing the reels, rewinding and so on. Uh, one of us could stand up and preach. And so, uh, in fact, film evangelism was a wonderful preaching opportunity. Mm. But it also stretched me because I had to learn how to start to preach. And when I went to college, I knew what I was studying for, so I was more motivated. And it was to the thanks of my pastor, Doc Watson, who insisted you must go to theological college. He said, it's obviously not a flash in a pan, he said. Um, the deacons all said that, you know, Peter Evans a flash in a pan. He won't last six months, won't last three months. You know, uh, nobody else can be a fanatic like this for so long. And uh, he said after after two years of me doing this, said, obviously not a flash in the pan. You've got to go to college because this is a lifetime calling. Mm-hmm. And I said, but the Lord's coming before the end of the year. He said, well, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, uh, the mission field's still going to be here. Uh, you need to focus on studying right now. And so, so that was hard for me, but it was good advice, and I – Obeyed my pastor, and I'm so glad I did because yeah. I did need that depth. Um, I couldn't continue just being an evangelomaniac, hit and run evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get some depth uh, in it. And again, this went along with the deepening of the theology of realizing I'm not just called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. Mm. And that's teaching obedience to all things the Lord's commanded. And so uh, in many cases, a lot of people see the Great Commission as just sharing the gospel mm. and witnessing or getting a convert or a decision, but that's not what the Great Commission tells us to do. And so when we began to understand that our mission changed to such an extent, we started to have Great Commission courses, which mm. just showed the, the depth now getting and saying, it's not enough just to hand out some tracts and, and preach a message. We've got to do a lot more than that to mm. fulfill the Great Commission. Mm. Absolutely. And so there's more work than just get these people converted, but you actually want them to grow into maturity. And then how do you have a mature church and how does the church reach out and be a light in the world? So what would you say our response as Christians should be as we think about the wars in the world today? How should we be engaging as Christians with the gospel to also engage in some of these war zones we see in our world? There's a series of eyes. The first thing is to be informed. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. You can't get too much information. And your first stop should be Operation World. I mean, mm-hmm. Operation World's got a chapter in every country in the world. Get on their website. Get the book. If you don't have the book in your church or mission library, you should have it. Mm-hmm. And college library, every church mission library needs an Operation World. And any serious intercessor needs the Operation World book. It's great. And uh, once you have read through that, you've got a much better understanding about that country. Now, who's working there? Um, get their mission newsletters. Contact them. Find out from the people there what can do to help. Of course, if there's no mission there, well, that's a challenge to start one. Mm-hmm. So being informed is the first thing. The next thing is being interceding. So starting to pray for that country or that people group or that particular war or that um, uh, um, particular fighting group, you know. For example, Angola, you need to where the Freedom Fighters under Jonas of MB, MPLA with the communists and then there's the Cubans and Russians and a whole lot of others. So to understand who's involved, now how can we reach them? Well, uh, so information, intercession, now we're talking about involvement. What can we do? Well, amongst the things that we saw, okay, well, we're going to need Russian Bibles and Spanish Bibles for the Russians and Cubans. Fair enough. We need um, Portuguese for a lot of the local people and uh, Shangan and uh, um, Tsonga and so on, Mozambique now. Lomwe, uh, Mozambique also. Over in Angola, now we're talking about Ovenbundu. Once you understand the languages, okay, I can't speak all languages, but Gospel Recordings has materials in all these languages. Scripture Gift Mission has a whole lot. All Nations Gospel Publishers produced a whole lot of materials. World Missionary Press uh, has got 
gospel booklets in over 300 languages. And so uh, getting the right literature for it and in the Bibles, of course, getting people to sponsor Bibles. And um, now who's traveling there? Now, it could be that you've got some people from your congregation traveling there for either work or for the military. Uh, There might be people that you know who are involved in the Red Cross or in the United Nations. And so they've got reasons going there. So one of our first things is courier service. Get Bibles and books into the people who are there. And, of course, ideal is to get someone boots on the ground who's willing to go there, who's capable, who's qualified, Mm -hmm. and to travel into these places. So uh, when I got started, um, many people might be surprised to hear how this can work. But, you know, what did I know about Sudan, for example, when I started going into Sudan 1995? Well, nothing more than what I'd read in Operation World. So I went to Lusaka, uh, to Nairobi and uh, went to the British Embassy and asked to speak to military attaché. Now, when you ask to speak to military attaché, no one asks questions because, you know, you've got to have – I mean, who asks to see the military attaché? And I've done this in many a place, and, and the military attaché comes down because he's intrigued. Who wants to see him? <laughs> he doesn't get a lot of visitors. And, uh, and you know, I know enough people in the military to find we soon knew some uh, common denominators and – you know, sitting down and over tea and start, you know, now I'm going to go on a mission into uh, Sudan and what are the incidents going on then? Well, he pulls out his instrument report, there's been bombings here, there's been ambushes there and so on and so forth. And you start to get a bit of a picture because he's, he says, you know, I must inform you that uh, British Foreign Office advised no British citizens to travel to Sudan, it's dangerous. And hmm. I understand that. Uh, but I'm a missionary, I must go there. And so after a while, we're pouring over maps, and he's giving me a lot of information because, mm. you know, this is a break to the modernity of his day, and <laughs> he's got someone who's actually interested in what he's doing, and he knows a lot of what's going on in the country, but who on earth wants to know that information? Mm. But for me, it's invaluable. And so I got a lot of my input there. Next thing is I went up to some UN refugee camps in Kenya, people who'd come out of Sudan, well, when they come out, find the people who've come out most recently, find out for them. Went to the Red Cross Hospital in Lokachokyo. They've got war-wounded Sudanese. Um, again, I'm not in Sudan yet, but I'm right on the border of Sudan. I'm speaking to people who've been war-wounded. Some of them came out just a few days ago. So you're able to, while just reading Bibles, showing the Jesus form, ministering to the refugees and the war-wounded in the Red Cross Hospital, learning more about across the border, including context. If you get to this village, contact so-and-so, he's the chief, this person, the pastor. And so finding out everything you can before you cross the border mm. is great. Now, if you've got a contact in the place, like we know of missionaries from South African America who are missionaries in Ukraine. So you get in touch with the people on the ground there and you find out what they're doing and how they can help, how you can help them. So, for example, I know that Slavic Gospel Association, which has been going for, since the 1930s, this is a really established mission, 90 years in the field. Slavic Gospel Association has got 4,500 congregations scattered across Russia and Ukraine as contacts. They are organizing millions of meals. They're doing vast amounts of of packages, blankets, clothes for refugees, meals, Bibles. And they've got the Bibles in the right languages, Ukrainian, Russian, and so on. So, you know, obviously I would say you're going to um, Ukraine or Russia, get in touch with the Slavic Gospel Association, find out what they're doing. If you're interested in humanitarian work, Samaritan's Purse is working Ukraine. So mm. find out for them. I know they're also dealing especially with refugees, medical, and so on. And uh, so uh, there are groups that you know that are going that are evangelical. will find out what they're doing, learn from them, help them out. If you can go, go. If you can't go, well, see if you can sponsor X amount of love packages or Bibles in, in those local languages. And 
Uh, if you want, you can contact us. We'll put you in touch with some missionaries we know in, in Ukraine or Russia. And uh, the point is, we must all pray. We Most of us can give, and some of us can even go. Mm. Absolutely. And so if there are those of you who are interested in working in war zones, you feel that the Lord's calling you there, or in the mission field, we also have a great commission course that we do every year as well. There's one coming up yes. June, July this year. 24th of June through to 13th of July, we've got another great commission course, three weeks, intensive, boots on the ground, body, mind, spirit. If you're interested in cross-cultural missions and how to comprehensively fulfill a great commission, it's a great place to start. It's a small group. It's a concentrated focus group based in Cape Town. If you're interested, contact us, mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za. And you can also see details on the Great Commission course, including videos and so on of previous ones and um, evaluations. And that is on www.frontlinemissionsa.org. That's the website. You can also say that coming up, I'm completing a book by God's grace, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. And this um, is an overview of a lot of the great things that the Lord did in spite of us over the last 40 years. Yeah. And a lot of anecdotes and answers to prayer and evangelistic opportunities and how God turned some very bad situations into trophies of grace. And, and just to see how the world has changed um, in the last 40 years. And not all of it for the bad. I mean, um, Mozambique is now free for the gospel. South Sudan is a free independent country. The Berlin Wall's down. The Iron Curtain's collapsed. Uh, Bible distribution throughout Eastern Europe is now legal and free. And, mm. and so it's so much good that we've seen many answers to prayer and a lot of answers uh, to God's grace and mercy of intervention. So Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book should be available by early April, God willing. We should mm. be getting it to the printer this week. Mm. Well, thank you so much for listening in tonight. We pray that this has been helpful for you as we think of the mission that we have as the people of God, as the children of God. And we think about Jesus. Um, Paul says in Romans 5 how even while we were enemies, uh, Christ died for us. And that's the mission God had for us, that even as we are his enemies, he sent the Son to us. And as Jesus says in the end of John's Gospel, he says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so... I am sending you. And so our job is to proclaim in his name to all nations the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins. So we pray that that would be on your heart uh, as you are praying for the nations, as churches, as families, and that you, if the Lord is calling you into the field, you would uh, connect with us or connect with one of these missions agencies we've, we've mentioned. And we'd love to put you in touch with the right people. Uh, we do pray that you too would be a witness into all creation for the glory of Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night and God bless.